Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. High alert. Ukraine declares a state of emergency amid warnings of a full Russian invasion. Presidential pressure. Putin says he's still open to dialogue, yet offers little room for compromise. And China criticism. Beijing says Western sanctions won't solve the crisis. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. And well, welcome to First Move once again. Good to be with you for the next hour as the world tries to decipher what Vladimir Putin is thinking and what his next move will be. In the meantime, moves are being made in the West. After days of urging calm, the Ukrainian government announcing plans for a nationwide state of emergency and urging citizens to leave Russia immediately. Russia now also reportedly recalling diplomats from Ukraine too. This follows an array of sanctions measures announced by the United States, the UK, Germany and Australia. The EU expected to formally approve more this hour. General consensus, however, those measures overall have far more bark than bite, with leaders choosing to keep more stringent measures in reserve should Putin push further. Now, despite the headline risk, losses actually were relatively constrained for U.S. stocks yesterday, down, as you can see there, around 1% across the board, at least for the S&P 500. But it is enough to see that index closing in correction territory, so down 10% from the most recent highs. That's the first time since, since the pandemic began nearly two years ago. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for futures today. They are higher at this stage. European stocks also gaining, as you can see, after a positive Asian close too. Now, even the Russian Moex stock market is managing to eke out again. Remember, I showed this to you yesterday. Just for context, that market remains down some 14% so far this week. And of course, it's only Wednesday. Perhaps helping broader sentiment and stock stabilize a softer oil market. Take a look at that. Brent crude pulling back after almost touching $100 a barrel intraday yesterday. Brent, however, is still trading at levels not seen since late 2014. All right, just moments ago, Ukraine's president warned that the future of European security is currently being decided. He spoke as the European Union prepares to unveil new sanctions against Moscow following similar measures by the United States and its allies. Russia, though, does not appear to be backing down. President Vladimir Putin posting this video message earlier. Our country is always open for direct and honest dialogue, for finding diplomatic solutions to the most difficult problems. But I repeat, Russia's interests and the security of our citizens are non-negotiable for us. Therefore, we will continue to develop, improve the army and navy, ensure that their efficiency increases and that they are equipped with the latest technology. Nick Payton Walsh joins us now from Odessa in Ukraine. Nick, great to have you with us. I think there is at least as much as uh, the last 12 hours is concerned, a heightened sense of tension and, and expectation. But again, I come back to the discussion we were having yesterday, this ongoing ambiguity over whether or not troops have crossed the border into some of these breakaway or separatist regions. And as you said to us yesterday, it's a spurious argument anyway, because troops are already there. Has anything fundamentally changed on the ground in your mind? 
It isn't still clear, as you say, if new Russian uniformed troops have gone in since the order from President Putin that defence ministries should protect the newly recognised separatist areas of eastern Ukraine. That is utterly key. The UK Foreign Secretary said it was ambiguous. We've had Western officials uh, certainly saying they were looking at images and we heard yesterday from the White House that they believe the beginning of an invasion was underway. An invasion is an invasion. But when is an invasion an invasion? We still don't know at this stage quite how that will be calculated. But I think this is all about trying to suggest that the wheels are in motion for a broader Russian military move. The problem really is that until those new troops massed on the border move into Ukraine, we are still at a point where we are in the lead up to that. And the sanctions we saw yesterday were preemptive, certainly to some degree. Some will be very cutting. The cancellation or certainly the lengthy delay of Nord Stream 2 will hurt Russia hard. Some of the other things may have been possible possibly factored in by the Kremlin. But as you say, this 24-hour period, a very key change in the rhetoric here. Sort of 24, 48 hours ago, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky talking about how he didn't expect a large Russian invasion. But now we look set to see a state of emergency introduced around the country and reservists called up uh, from yesterday. So important changes in the tone here in Ukraine. And I think concerns across the country, even far out in the west here, in this strategic port city, of quite how widespread any Russian move could be. The key really is what Vladimir Putin is saying. Diplomacy is something that the US still contemplates, it seems, but at the same time he says he's still open to talking about it, yet he makes these bizarre comments about Ukraine seeking nuclear weapons today, about how Russia has the very best weaponry, uh, and made that lengthy, nearly hour-long speech outlining essentially a case why it would be all right, for, in his mind, for Russia to move in to get rid of the NATO threat here in Ukraine. And so that has many people, I think, deeply concerned about the scale of what could be to come. The facts of the matter so far today... Uh, are still confusing in terms of how far Russia has gone. You would have thought that they would walk into those separatist areas with a degree of sort of fanfare, or at least announcing their public overt presence after eight years of doing everything covertly there. But that hasn't happened yet. And indeed, uh, Denis Pushilin, uh, the leader of the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic, said recently today, in fact, that the troops had not come in at this stage. They might if Ukraine attacks. So the question really is timing now. How much longer does Putin intend to leave sort of nearly two-thirds, it seems, of his or more of his land forces in that border area in sort of primed tactical formations? Western official I spoke to you said he can only do that uh, for a matter of days. Does he leave them there and then send parts of them home, feeling he may have got something he wanted or terrified people here in Ukraine enough? Or do they actually have to start moving? It's seems pretty clear in Western capitals they know what or they think they know what's going to happen but only one person really does and that's Vladimir Putin and in that 57 minute speech he gave he did not seem like he was done here. Yeah willing to back down in any sense of the word to your point when it's an invasion an invasion the degree of sanctions suggests that we're still waiting for it on the part of the West. Your point about Nord Stream 2, I, I agree with you aside, that's, that's got bite. But what we also heard yesterday was uh, the fact that US Secretary of State Antony Blinken now not going to meet with the Russian Foreign Secretary Sergei Lavrov this week. Um, I think to your bigger point here of, of what the next move will be from Putin and what we're waiting for here, are there any reasonable hopes that there is a path forward here for diplomacy in light of what we're seeing, hearing, or perhaps not seeing, more importantly? 
as, again, that really comes down to whether what Putin has been looking for all along is some diplomatic showdown, a bit of respect, as he would think, from his uh, Western counterparts, and then he backs down. But the Minsk agreements, which were being potentially revisited here or finalised, they're pretty much dead, certainly. Uh, Russia thinks that, and really Ukraine could never talk about uh, that sort of conversation again, given Russia's recognised those breakaway republics. So that's one avenue kind of shut down. The broader US-Russia discussion about some strategic deal, it does seem pretty clear with Secretary Blinken cancelling his meeting in Geneva that he is unlikely uh, to hatch some sort of massa overarching deal uh, with the Russians given they've already considered the invasion here to have begun, sort of the gun being held to uh, Ukraine's head, having its sort of finger on the trigger. And so the, the question is, is there some sort of thing that Putin's been searching for? He does clearly want some sort of promise that Ukraine won't join NATO. He considers Ukraine different to all the former Soviet republics. Uh, he clearly does want some wider promise uh, from the United States. They might roll back their presence in Europe. I mean, you know, that is just not going to happen. So it does seem like the possibility of a practical diplomatic outcome where something is agreed that's real and tangible that solves this crisis is uh, on the back burner at the moment and that leaves the fear being that we are heading into what people have been warning for for weeks uh, an invasion that sounded preposterous when frankly it was first briefed by western intelligence officials such a crazy thing to possibly imagine occurring that we might see a version of that or a lesser version of that or possibly whatever form it takes some kind of military escalation here uh, involving all those troops on the Ukrainian border. Julia? Nick, great to have you with us. Nick Payton Walsh there. Thank you. Now, the separatist leader of one of the two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine says there are no Russian troops there right now, but he says they will come if Ukraine attacks. Satellite images show a continuing Russian buildup on the Ukrainian border. Fred Plankin is on the Russian side of the border for us now. Fred, I mean, you and I can debate what the separatist leader said there in light of what Nick was just saying about the presence, long presence of, of Russian troops in these separatist regions. But I wanted to ask you what evidence you're seeing, if any, of preparation for, mm. for more concerted action. And what about the ordinary people that you're meeting there? What are they saying about what they're seeing, yeah. reading, hearing? Mm. Uh, hi there, Julia. Yeah, I mean, Nick obviously already elaborated uh, on it for, for quite a bit in his answer there. Uh, but the people that we're speaking to on the ground, it's really quite interesting because we managed to speak to some folks who had to leave the Donetsk People's Republic, who had to leave some of those separatist areas and then went into Russian territory. Of course, you'll recall that uh, at the end of last week, the separatist leader uh, leaders in both of those republics said that they were evacuating some of the civilians, especially women and children. We were able to speak to some of them last night. And they said that they did witness uh, some shelling uh, over the days leading up to their evacuation. But they also said um, that they, um, they're really hoping that things uh, go back to normal. They're really hoping that there is no wider war. A lot of them said that, yes, they do have some anger towards the Ukrainian authorities. They do have some anger towards the Ukrainian military, but certainly not uh, to their neighbors who are on the other side of the front line. And they certainly don't want a wider war. However, on the ground, what we were seeing there yesterday and to a certain extent also today as well is there are a lot of Russian troops that are amassing on that side of the um, on the Russian side of the border uh, with Ukraine, which now, of course, is those or which are those separatist republics that Vladimir Putin has now recognized. And that those forces seem to be in a posture right now where they could strike any time. And that's a big difference uh, to what uh, the U.S. says uh, they had been seeing in the weeks uh, leading up to all of this. At the beginning, 
Forces were obviously being brought in from all parts of Russia. Then they were in bases, but now you're really seeing them on the side of the road. You're seeing soldiers inside their vehicles uh, waiting and, and seemingly at the ready. And that's something that, of course, has the U.S., extremely concerned and increasingly also the Ukrainian government very concerned as well with them now uh, talking about the state of emergency with them drawing up the reserves as well. You see Russian troop concentrations in many places here across the border. It's quite interesting because today we're actually traveling along the border of Russia and those separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. And there are actually areas where you don't see any Russian forces at all, but then you do see concentrations in certain areas. It's a very large uh, uh, area that we're covering. It's a very large area where you do have those Russian forces. And it certainly does appear as though that buildup is continuing and is getting Getting stronger, with some reports also saying that there's now a big field hospital that's going into operation as well, a little bit north of where I am right now, Julia. Fred, great to get your insights. Thank you for joining us. Fred Plankin there. Now, as we've discussed, Russian aggression met by Western sanctions. So far, the US, UK and EU have issued sanctions against several Russian banks, sovereign debt and some Russian elites. Here's what President Biden said on Tuesday. As I said last week, Defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. We need to be honest about that. But as we will do, but as we do this, I'm going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at a Russian economy, not ours. Anna Stewart joins me now. Uh, Anna, great to have you with us. Germany, I think, stands out as the one, as we discussed yesterday, that took really pointed action with the mm. suspension of the certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But I think the general consensus on the rest of it is far more bark than bite and powder, dry powder is being held in reserve. <laughs> Yeah, and on terms of the bark, though, we have to remember that this was at least a clear bark and it was a cohesive bark. It was heard. It was a real show of unity, I think, for Western allies. And so actually, despite the fact that the sanctions were quite limited, that certainly plays into Western allies' favour. Russia may have been surprised at the unity that we saw there. But you're right. These sanctions are very much like an opening salvo. They're really targeted and limited. They're looking at targeting oligarchs, only a handful, many of whom actually have already faced sanctions before by one or more of the Western allies allies. Um, smaller banks, I had to look quite a few of them up, um, largely those with direct links to the Kremlin. So we're not seeing the bigger institutions that you might expect at this stage. But the most damaging, Nord Stream 2, as you mentioned, from Germany, and that was a very brave move. That was probably, you know, really the biggest stick they could hit Russia with. Um, and it's one that has huge potential fallout for Germany, given their reliance on gas. The other, the US decision to actually place further sanctions on Russian debt. They're building on what they put in place in 2014. The problem is, Julia, since 2014, with the illegal annexation of Crimea, Russia has really built up its financial position. It's got really a war chest. And actually, we just had news from the Russian finance ministry saying their reserves are more than double their planned net borrowing for this year, which is 20 $27 billion. So in terms of actually making a dent in Russia's economy, in terms of sanctions, we're going to have to see a lot more. And what might that a lot more look like, Anna? <laughs> well, there are several options on the table. And listen, what we heard from European leaders and from Joe Biden, the US president yesterday, was very much they know this is the opening salvo. They say they've got more cards to play. Now, one, of course, is sanctions on the bigger banks. So VTB, Spurbank, for instance, uh, there are many more oligarchs around Europe with vast amounts of wealth. You could freeze more assets. You could revoke visas. You could make life very difficult for the people that can put pressure 
on President Putin. Secondly, export restrictions stopping the exports of key technology, um, even components like car parts, parts that needs that are needed by um, plane makers in Russia and so on. And you could target the defense sector particularly. Thirdly, and this is really the Trump card that we've spoken a lot about uh, already, is SWIFT, disconnecting Russia from SWIFT, which is the global financial network that really underpins financial transactions around the world. That would really impact any business in Russia that has any kind of transaction with any other country, but it would have a huge fallout as well for for companies that are invested in Russia around the world. So that really is the Trump card. But that's the problem. The more um, significant the sanctions and the more impact they could have on Russia, really the bigger the financial fallout internationally. Julia? Yes, the greater the spillover effects. Anna Stewart, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, perhaps no surprise, China criticising sanctions. The Chinese foreign ministry saying, quote, we believe that sanctions are never the fundamental and effective way to solve problems. China always opposes any illegal unilateral sanctions, quote. But Taiwan condemning Russia for undermining Ukraine's sovereignty. Well, Ripley joins me on this. Well, when you're sitting, I'm assuming there's um, a high degree of empathy from Taiwan for Ukraine's position here. And I think all of us have to imagine that China's watching the United States. They're watching the allies respond to the threat against Ukraine here, at least with an eye to their potential future ambitions towards Taiwan. And you can see the parallels, Uh, small Taiwan against the motherland, China, small Ukraine against mother Russia. Of course, obviously, fundamentally, the the two situations are entirely different with different history. But uh, the president here in Taiwan, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, said that she has empathy uh, for Ukraine because Taiwan, this island, this self-governing democracy, knows what it feels like to face a military threat from a much more powerful authoritarian foe. Now, She's also telling, uh, you know, her security council, her military officials uh, that they need to increase surveillance uh, around Taiwan, you know, because they want to make sure that they're alert. They want to make sure that they can see if there's any military activity that's unusual uh, from the mainland. And, And as of now, nothing unusual has been observed. China has stepped up. Uh, its military activity near this island for the last two years. Uh, So nothing that's been happening in recent days uh, is out of the ordinary, but there certainly is some nervous energy here that Beijing might try to take advantage of the crisis in Ukraine uh, to put more pressure. Um, And of course, from the Chinese perspective, uh, they blame the United States and its allies for what Russia is doing, saying that this is a consequence of pushing power to the brink because uh, NATO, uh, you know, over a period of years, uh, basically moved on into Russia's doorstep, as China described it. Um, and they say that Vladimir Putin didn't have a choice but to take back, uh, potentially. So you, then you have China also saying that the United States is pushing them to the brink with its relationship, its deepening relationship here in Taiwan. So you can see how China might use similar thinking down the road to somehow justify potentially trying to absorb this island, unify with this island that the communist rulers in the mainland have never controlled and do it by force if they can't do it by disinformation campaigns or getting, uh, you know, getting people that planted in here who spread rumors about the opposition political party. That actually happens, Julia. There are people yeah. on the ground who spread rumors by people's ears, then they post a fake story on Facebook, and before you know it, there's this whole alternate reality that exists, people believing this fake news. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
It sounds very familiar, and actually not just in these two parts of the world, quite frankly, that we're discussing. Um, well, as you said, situation different, but the parallel's clear, and I think the whole world's watching. Well, Ripley, thank you for that. Yeah. Now straight ahead on first move, punishing Putin. Are more aggressive sanctions on Russian oligarchs the key? We'll discuss. Plus, an exclusive new CNN poll, what Russians think about Ukraine, NATO, and the prospect of war. Surprising findings. Next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are set to rise in early trade after a week Tuesday that saw the S&P 500 falling into correction territory. That's a 10 percent drop from January highs. Tech stocks also trading less than 3 percent away from bear market territory. So that would be down 20 percent from recent highs and are near their worst levels of the year. That chart tells the story. Markets, of course, globally. They're going to be sensitive to headline risk coming out of Ukraine as this continues to develop. Latest today reports that Russia is beginning to pull its diplomatic staff out of Ukraine at the same time as Ukraine advises its citizens to immediately get out of Russia. Russia also warning that it will deliver a strong response to U.S. sanctions announced by President Biden yesterday. But Ukraine saying the sanctions simply don't go far enough to deter President Putin. This morning, its foreign minister tweeting to stop Putin from further aggression, hit more, hit hard, hit now. He's not the only one saying that. The sanctions have been criticized by some in the West for lacking bite. Joining me is Matthew Schmidt, Associate Professor of National Security and Political Science at the University of New Haven. Matthew, great to have you on the show. When you assess... Good morning. Good morning. When you assess the announcements that were made in terms of sanctions, surely there's nothing there that will have surprised and not been anticipated by Vladimir Putin. That's right. And uh, Putin has been hoarding cash since about 2018, uh, building up his banks and building up his reserves, presumably to survive exactly this kind of uh, episode, these kinds of sanctions. He effectively said today we can survive two years based on our borrowing requirements on the cash that we have, the net cash that we have in reserve. Yeah, and I think the other place to look um, besides Russia in general are the sanctions that we've put in place now against the occupied territories. If you look, their total GDP for a year is maybe $10 billion. So Russia could simply pay cash out and keep them going for quite a while. You and others have made the point that the best way to pressure Vladimir Putin is to directly target some of the oligarchs and those with strength and wealth that are often not in Moscow, they're in London or they're in Switzerland or they enjoy a luxury lifestyle elsewhere in the world. Do you believe that this is key to perhaps piling pressure on Vladimir Putin to think twice about his plans? I think it's important that we try, right? This is a way also to keep us out militarily. So we need to do everything that we can. But we need to recognize that when you make your first billion, you right away spend several million to learn how to protect and hide that money. Um, the second thing is, is I think people aren't realizing the human aspect of this. These men and a few women who are close to Putin, who have this kind of money, share his vision. Right? They're not against him. The whole idea of sanctions is that if you put enough economic pain on the oligarchs, they're going to put pressure on Putin to say pull back in Ukraine to change his behavior. But what we're not asking is, what if they believe what he believes? Right? What if they believe that it's essential to bring Ukraine back into Moscow's cultural and political orbit? Right? Why would they act? The second thing I think is 
that we have to remember that Putin was the head of the FSB, right? The successor to the KGB. As long as he has their, their faith and their loyalty, he can threaten the lives of these oligarchs, right? We know that Putin is able to do it. We know that he's able to operate in London, for instance. We know that he's able to operate in Europe. So they have to think about that and decide, you know, what is worth losing. If they lose a few billion dollars at a certain, you know, for, for a while and regain it in, in 20 years, right, is that worth their lives? And I think we need to keep that in mind. I think I would argue with you that ideology trumps money. I would disagree with that. But I perhaps would agree with you that fear trumps all. And I think anyone who was watching that press conference earlier this week when they saw Putin tackle his own security chief, the head of the the FSB, um, told you something about the threat that he still poses in terms of security. And you're saying, actually, most of these oligarchs are still terrified of of the power that, that Putin has. I am. Um, I'm going to push back again and say that many of them, in fact, do share this vision and we can't discount that. But absolutely, they're afraid of his ability to, to send out assassins. They're afraid of his ability to use force and simply uh, simply take, right, uh, take resources and take assets around the world. And I think both of these things together uh, really call into question what our sanctions can do, unless there's something that, you know, the administration has up their sleeve that we don't know about that's really quite powerful. And again, remember also that Putin said, you know, he's going to push back, right? He has countermeasures to this. And, and when you put these three things together, I think we're looking down the road here a few weeks or a few months in this crisis uh, in a situation where we might be quite impotent. We might be out of the tools we need to try to uh, maneuver him in the direction we want. You were not bad for CNN, which I recommend people read this week, and it is entitled The One Thing That Could Deter Putin. And and you point to loss, the human cost of of losing lives on the battlefield, if that's what it comes to. And therefore, it's important to ensure that Ukraine is as strong militarily as it can be as a deterrent effect. Do you see that at this stage, Ukraine is in that position? And based on what you were just saying, do you rule out NATO engagement irrespective of whether or not Ukraine is in NATO, which, of course, it isn't. Uh, I don't think you can rule out NATO engagement yet, but that's a question in the hands of Vladimir Putin and how much he believes in this vision and is willing to risk. I think people need to understand that, first of all, there are several million ethnic Ukrainians living in Russia right now, which means there are several million Russian citizens that have friends and family that are staring down the barrels of Russian guns. That matters. In addition, if you look at the polling data, Russians are not necessarily in favor of this war. Because they're fighting, right, a kin country, it's hard for Putin to dehumanize them, right? It's hard for him to push this idea that they really do represent a threat to Moscow when many of these people remember a time when, you know, there was no effective border between the two states. So when you break this down even further, what you see is that military age uh, you know, kids, 18 to 24 year olds are quite significantly right against the war. Um, you see that especially those who aren't watching television, but those who are using social media platforms like Telegram are getting information that is that is, you know, real information that's pushing them away from the war. You see the next two cohorts, uh, parents, right, young parents and then and then older parents in their 40s are also significantly against the war. And if Ukraine manages to stack up bodies, I mean, this is just the truth of war, to stack up body bags and send them back to Moscow 
it could be the the spark that lights that fire for you know uh, for Russia's Maidan for that revolution that's been brewing there for a while and has been suppressed because Putin has been right suppressing journalists and murdering journalists and keeping their voices uh, out of the public sphere because of what he's been doing to Alexei Navalny. But all of these things are there and they're simmering under the surface. And if Ukraine is able to punch back hard enough and hold together, right, especially if they have to move into some kind of insurgency, this will have an effect. Matthew, great to get your insight. So much there, including the, the fascinating point about the difference between state TV, state media and news and social media, and perhaps the differences of uh, assimilating uh, information and facts. Matthew, we'll speak again. Thank you. Matthew Schmidt there, Associate Professor of National Security and Political Science at the University of New Haven. So thank you. Stay with me first move. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Wednesday, and we are beginning the session high with tech in the lead, as you can see, up more than 1% at this moment. In Europe, stocks are on the rise for the first time in five days, in fact, as investors monitor the headlines from Ukraine. Remember, a lot of negative geopolitical news has already been priced in, with the S&P 500 falling to that 10% correction level, so 10% from recent highs. That was hit yesterday for the first time since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oil traders have also factored in a significant degree of bad news. Crews steadying in the session today, but many worrying Brent will hit $110 a barrel if Russia ultimately invades Ukraine. Plenty of ifs there, but that's the price level as we see it right now. Risky assets also seemingly a little bit further firmer today. Bitcoin higher after falling to a two-week low in Tuesday's session. Concern that Bitcoin has so far failed to act as a safe haven during the Ukraine crisis. Now, the world is watching closely to see what Vladimir Putin's next move will be. Earlier, we heard from Ukraine's president who said the future of European security is being decided in his country's standoff with Russia. Now, new satellite images are showing a continuing buildup of Russian forces on the Ukraine border. Kyiv is calling on citizens in Russia to leave and says a state of emergency will be introduced across all parts of Ukraine under government control. CNN's Sam Kiley is in the Donbass region where shelling has been reported. About 500 metres in that direction is the front line, effectively. On the other side of that, in the other part of the Donetsk Oblast, are the Russian-backed separatists, possibly now supported with formerly recognised Russian troops. But in the last 48 hours, this town has been the scene of intense shelling. It has been the scene of at least one killing, a chap called Roman who was killed about 100 metres in that direction during a volley of fire that resulted here, the damage you can see to a family's home. Now this is a family and there, I don't know if you could hear it, but there was another shell landing in the distance there. It's been a steady drumbeat, a kind of relentless thunder all day of shelling. This one happened 48 hours ago Mercifully, nobody was actually killed, which is, frankly, a miracle. Irena and her daughter, Veronica, were actually hiding in here, uh, in the kitchen. It's an outside kitchen. You can see the shrapnel blows, strikes, rather, that have torn into the building. Didn't go through the walls. Now, take a look at what the sort of damage you can get when a single artillery shell hits a civilian home. That, effectively, is the exit wound. That is the consequence, and there was another shell I've just heard landing. These shells that are landing, they're not near us. Uh, they're about a half a mile away. 
This is a shell though that has blown out the far side. That is the exit wound to a home. But when you see what high explosives can do when fired into a civilian environment, it's quite terrifying. Now earlier on we were advised not to go upstairs, but I think having checked it out, I'm gonna take the risk because it really is worth showing just how horrific the results of a single shell can be. These were stud walls all gone. The structure is very wobbly. There is a limited amount of masonry holding this place together. The family study. And this is the bedroom of a nine-year-old. This is the bedroom of Veronica. Luckily, she was in the kitchen lying on the floor when these shells landed. But it could have been so much worse. Truly, almost a miraculous survival. All of the everyday manifestations of a young child's life being torn to pieces, utterly shredded. It is absolutely extraordinary that this could have been done by a single artillery shell. There were four that landed in this town. Part of an exchange of fire, some locals have said. Others are claiming that it's just the worst level of shelling that they've seen in many years. Not since 2014, which is when this war was started. And indeed, this town actually fell then to the Russian-backed rebels. And the Russian-backed rebels are saying, with Putin's agreement, that this territory is part of the land that they claim. They're not yet on it. This territory where I'm standing is still controlled by the government, by government forces. They're here on the ground, many of them in a fairly covert environment, apart from those that are holding those already established front lines. Sam Kiley there. And we're joined by CNN military analyst Major General James Spider-Marks joins us now. General Marks, a huge pleasure to have you on the show there is so much noise and movement, even just in the last 12 hours that I'm presenting to my viewers. Can you cut through some of that for me, just in terms of what you're seeing and hearing? How have the risks changed in your mind? Well, Julia, first of all, thanks for having me. The risk has been elevated, certainly, by the proclamations of Putin. Um, his rather despotic control over his inner circle. I mean, we've seen those videos, <clears throat> excuse me, akin to Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. I mean, th this is, I'm not trying to be facetious, but this is truly a controlled environment, and I don't know what type of input Putin is getting. Therefore, our view is that this has really increased, and then you see what's happening on the ground. You know, the words are, are initially put out there, and then the behavior changes. And the behavior is the movement of self-propelled artillery, logistics capabilities, rocket capabilities, infantry fighting vehicles, tanks, etc., in the area just at the bottom of the Donbass region, the Donetsk province. These are, as you can see in this video, these are movements into that area. And it's only a matter of time before they go across the border if they haven't already. Now bear in mind for the last eight years, Russian forces have been supporting and leading the separatist fight against the Ukrainian forces in those two areas. So this movement across could be done and probably is being done without a shot being fired. 
other than the sporadic artillery fire that keeps everybody's head down. So this is an increase in a presence that allows Putin now to expand. And from a military guy's perspective, the last thing you want to do is give your opponent, the Ukrainian forces, an opportunity to respond, to improve their stance, to move in other capabilities. I would anticipate that Putin is going to probably have a sham election very quickly that says everybody's going to vote. Yes, we want to be a part of Moscow. Yes, we really are Russian. And then he's going to move very quickly. And that's when some real fighting will occur because that's where the Ukrainian forces will try to resist. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because everything you described there up until the point of violence can be done with what already exists, with the infrastructure, with the troops that are already in these separatist regions, which I think is a vital point to understand at this moment. Um, but your reference to Austin Powers and Dr. Evil actually resonates with me. Oh. And I do want to pick up on that based on the comments that we've seen made by President Emmanuel Macron of France, where he said this is a, a dramatically different Vladimir Putin from even two to three years ago, uh, isolated, this ideological drift that he's seeing. Um, I showed video just earlier on the show of him dressing down his own uh, FSB chief, which I think were, for all of those watching is was a cringeworthy moment. Um, what are we witnessing here? And if you were advising those that are responding, engaging, reacting to Vladimir Putin, what would you say because there is a danger, perhaps, that we underestimate his mood at this moment. It's a, it's a great question because we tend, obviously, to view our, our engagements who, with whomever we have, whether these are competitors, or these are friends, or these are enemies, through our own, our own perspectives of what rational looks like. Mm. Putin is incredibly rational in his own mind. He's achieving his desired end state. He's setting the tone of this engagement. We have to be very careful about demeaning that because then we put our guard down. If we were to label him more than just a thug, if we were to say he's crazy or this is a, nuts, a nutso reaction, then our behavior doesn't account for what he's really capable of. It's incredibly important that we keep that in mind. The other thing that I see is that you know effective leaders always have around them, must have around them, those contrarian voices that routinely have the obligation to whisper in the ear of that leader and say, you know, this is not a good idea. Or have you considered this? Putin gets none of that. And we saw that in the video, Julia, you just referenced. It's frightening. It was the F FSB chief is up there saying, and Putin's dressing him down. And of course, the answer is, whatever you say, boss, I'm on board. I mean, that's ultimately the answer, because if I'm not... Putin's going to hit that hit the button and the FSB chief goes disappearing into that cauldron of fire. You know, it's going to be terribly unfortunate. At the very least. I mean, we laugh and we joke, but um, yeah, unfortunately, that's the risk. And we've seen that in the past, that type of behavior with Putin, too. It sort of brings me back to the again, the conversation I was having earlier on the show. And I I know you were listening in about the only real deterrent in um, Mr. Schmidt's mind, who I was just speaking to, was that you have to bolster the forces in Ukraine. He didn't rule out the prospect of NATO engagement on some level simply to prevent a more uh, widespread invasion of Ukraine. What's your sense and, and, and understanding of what might be required here and whether or not there is a way, in light of everything we've discussed, to, to stop Putin here? Yeah, the, the issue, I think the, the short answer to that question is, from NATO, is Ukraine, you're on your own, 
Mm. We emotionally are here to support you. We have given you forces. You are going to use those forces. We're not going to fight Russian forces in Ukraine specifically. So the buildup of NATO forces increase U.S. presence with some real capable kit, you know, attack helicopters, et cetera, in the Baltics and elsewhere in the region really send a message to those NATO partners. We understand Article 5. We're here for you. If anything slips or spills over into your country, we're here for you. Um, that's not the message to Ukraine. And they know that. They simply are not members of NATO. And it's been very clear from our president and NATO that this is an outrage of all the elements of power. We can apply some military pressure on the shoulders, but we've got economic pressure and informational pressure and certainly diplomacy to try to um, deter, but obviously the deterrence has not worked to date. What might happen, Julia, is Putin stops where he is, might push a little further, but it, that remains to be seen. That remains to be seen, but also bear in mind, he wants to connect Crimea to that Donbass region and to greater Russia. That's gonna require the application of military force. Yeah, that's the fear. Major General James Marks, sir, a pleasure. Thank you, to have, uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. Okay, ahead on First Move, the results of a new CNN poll with some startling findings on how people in Russia and Ukraine feel about the use of military force in Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. We've just learned the websites of the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry, Cabinet, Parliament and the Security Service have gone down. We did not know the cause. Last week, of course, there was a denial of service attack against key sectors in Ukraine. As we get any further details or headlines on that, I will bring them to you. For now, President Biden says Russia's actions amount to the beginning of an invasion of Ukraine. But what are people in Russia and Ukraine saying? CNN has the results of an exclusive poll conducted in both countries this month. Nick Robertson joins me now with the results of that poll. Nick, what are, what are the people saying? This is really interesting because I think the results speak to the amount of propaganda, if you will, in Russia and speak to the amount of people that buy into President Putin's propaganda about the reasons to go to war. So about 50 percent of Russians say that uh, Russia should or, or, or would be right to go to war with Ukraine to stop it becoming a member of NATO. Uh, the number drops away uh, more to about one third of Russians that would support Russia going to war with Ukraine to force Ukraine to be, become one country with Russia. And of course, both of these things have been President Putin's narrative that uh, he's really been pushing strongly over the past few days, that historically Ukraine is part of Russia, that, that Ukraine represents a strategic threat to Russia at the moment, uh, and that threat would only be worsened if uh, Ukraine became a member of NATO. So I think, you know, you can see a level of resonance with the Russian population. It's not massive, but it shows that Putin appears to be carrying the population. I think it would be reasonable to expect, though, that if there was a war and if there were Russian casualties, those numbers could change uh, pretty quickly uh, against uh, President Putin. Although, you know, again, saying that you have to look into... You have to look at the fact that 
Opposition media here has been pretty much completely crushed. Human rights organizations have been pretty much extinguished here as well. This past weekend, three human rights activists went to protest uh, Russia's military buildup uh, around Ukraine, protest outside the Kremlin, um, and one of them was arrested. You know, the message has really sunk into people here over the past few years that, that going out and protesting against what the Kremlin is saying, um, it, it just isn't going to work for you. Go back to 2014 when, the, when Russia annexed Crimea. A protest uh, that at that time then was joined by big name politicians. Uh, they were the first to be arrested at the protest. The next were those who were sort of shouting out slogans. The next were those holding banners. Uh, and then the police came in for the remainder. And, and it's been a long period now where the, the, the idea of being able to get an independent voice out that's critical of the Kremlin has just been becoming choked off more and more. And I think the other, the other interesting, and in the context of that, I suppose, the other interesting statistic that comes out of uh, the, the, the data here um, one of the more headline statistics is interesting. Um, uh, less than one in 10 Ukrainians say um, that Russia and Ukraine should be one united country, which again is perhaps not surprising, but shows you the level of rejection in Ukraine for President Putin's narrative. And interestingly, again, in Russia, only one third of the population um, think that they should all be one country. So it's that sort of one country narrative that President Putin has at the moment that's perhaps missing its target most of all. The thing that seems to be successful for him is to say that NATO and Ukraine combined are the biggest threat for Russia. Yeah, it ties the threads of the entire show, this fear of violence and the threat in Ukraine, but also a fear in all the layers below Vladimir Putin. No one is able, willing or allowed to push back or question, which is why perhaps we find ourselves in this situation. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Nick Robertson there. Okay, after the break, how the Ukraine crisis could affect football fans growing calls to take some high-profile matches away from Russia. Next. Welcome back to First Move Football or Soccer. Caught in the middle of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, FIFA and Europe's governing body UEFA say they are monitoring the situation. A World Cup qualifier between Russia and Poland is scheduled for next month in Moscow and the Champions League final is set to be held in St. Petersburg in May. Alex Thomas joins me now. Alex, this is a classic uh, business, money, influence, politics story for me. It's different, but there's also parallels. Um, I think the Beijing Winter Olympics proved that sport can transcend human rights concerns, political concerns, and, and people get on with it. Does the same apply here? No real echoes with those Beijing Winter Olympics mm. that only finished last Sunday, Julia. You're absolutely right. It played throughout by discussions as to whether Russia should be there, even though they were under the ROC banner rather than actually called Russia, and whether the event should have been taken to China at all because of uh, disputes and disagreements and criticism of its human rights record. This is slightly different because during that time at the Beijing Winter Olympics, Russia hadn't yet invaded Ukraine or, or looked like they were on the verge of doing in the way that they are now. And we have got the Champions League final, as you mentioned, scheduled to be held in St. Petersburg in May. Closer to that, a World Cup qualifier with Russia hosting Poland as, re as soon as next month. So problems for FIFA and UEFA. They'll want to say that sport and politics do not mix. But of course, we know that if there's global action and global sanctions against the country, it's very hard to justify taking a sporting event there, not least from the practical considerations of fans being able to travel into, you know, 
areas involved in conflict, um, but also just the, the moral arguments. Uh, of course, there are sponsors tied up in this as well. Uh, plenty of money at stake, and that further complicates the issue. Yeah, as always. Alex, very quickly, timing, when will they likely have to make a decision? I think uh, in the next few weeks in terms of that yeah. World Cup qualifier, but they've got a bit longer UEFA in terms of the Champions League final. Mm. Alex, great to have you with us. Thank you. Alex Thomas there. OK, that's it for the show. Our coverage continues with Connect the World with Becky Anderson. Up next, stay with CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.